Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hello Octavia. Hi Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm very well babe, how are you? Uh, I'm very well. I'm adopting a high society voice. <laughs> don't In stop. honor. No, I mean, I don't really know what a high society voice is. But I don't know, it sounded pretty good. Oh, Shall I, I? I should also try. Well, you may be... Careful now. <laughs> Am I treading on thin <laughs> ground here? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. Um, well, today, darling, the reason I'm talking about that is because the theme of our show today is high society. We will be talking about all things hoity-toity, posh, and expensive. Why are there so many rich people in fiction? Should they be anything other than the object of ridicule and scorn? Are the rich different from us? We'll attempt to answer these questions in our discussion of the rich in literature, but first, we're talking to the Canadian novelist Patrick DeWitt, whose fourth novel, French Exit, is the story of Frances, an upper-class widow and her adult son Malcolm, who flee from New York to Paris when their money runs out. Accompanying them is their cat, in whom the body of Frances's dead ex-husband resides, along with, eventually, a medium, a French private investigator, and a lonely sycophant. If that sounds totally absurd and pretty funny, it is. <laughs> <laughs> like my coffee. <laughs> Octavia, do you want to introduce Patrick a little more? With pleasure. Um, in addition to French Exit, Patrick DeWitt is the author of The Sisters Brothers, which was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Walter Scott Prize. It's just been made into a film by director Jacques Audiard, starring Joaquin Phoenix, John C. Riley, Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed, who are pretty awesome. That's a pretty good four dudes. Um I'm very articulate this morning, as you can tell. Four dudes. Four dudes. Four good dudes. Uh, he's also the author of Ablutions and Under Major Domo Minor. Born in British Columbia, Canada, DeWitt is now based in Portland, Oregon. Thank you. And thank you for saying all of the hard words in your segment of the program. I was really appreciating you as a person during that. Oh, darling. So today we will talk to Patrick about French Exit, more widely about high society and literature. And finally, we will give our book recommendations. So grab your champagne coupe. <laughs> <laughs> Never Done stop. for you. Done for you. And stay with us for the next hour on Literary Friction. Patrick DeWitt, thanks so much for coming on Literary Friction today. Sure. Thank you for having me. So we've asked you to start with a reading. Do you mind setting it up? Yeah, I'm just going to read from the very start of the book. This is chapter one. And we see the protagonist, who's named Frances Price, and her adult son, Malcolm, have decided to leave a party. Chapter one. All good things must end, said Frances Price. She was a moneyed, striking woman of 65 years, easing her hands into black calfskin gloves on the steps of a brownstone in New York City's Upper East Side. Her son, Malcolm, 32, stood nearby looking his usual broody and unkempt self. It was late autumn, dusk. The windows of the brownstone were lit. A piano sounded on the air. A tasteful party was occurring. Francis was explaining her early departure to a similarly wealthy, though less lovely individual, this the hostess. Her name doesn't matter. She was aggrieved. You're certain you have to go? Is it really so bad as that? According to the veterinarian, it's only a matter of time, Francis said. What a shame. We were having such a lovely evening. Were you really, the hostess asked, hopefully. Such a lovely evening, and I do hate to leave, but it sounds an actual emergency. And what can be done in the face of that? The hostess considered her answer. Nothing, she said finally. A silence arrived. To Francis's horror, the hostess lunged and clung to her. I've always admired you so, she whispered. 
Malcolm, said Francis. Actually, I'm sort of afraid of you. Is that very silly of me? Malcolm, Malcolm. Malcolm found the hostess pliable. He peeled her away from his mother, then took the woman's hand in his and shook it. She watched her hand going up and down with an expression of puzzlement. She'd had too, too many drinks, and there was nothing in her stomach but a viscous pâté. She returned to her home, and Malcolm led Francis away, down the steps to the sidewalk. They passed the waiting town car and sat on a bench twenty yards back from the brownstone, for there was no emergency, no veterinarian, and the cat, that antique oddity called Small Frank, was not unwell, so far as they knew. <clears throat> Francis lit a cigarette with her gold lighter. She liked this lighter best due to its satisfying weight and the distinguished click it made at the moment of ignition. She aimed the glowing cherry at the hostess, now visible in an upstairs window, speaking with one of her guests. Francis shook her head. Born to bore, she said. Malcolm was inspecting a framed photograph he'd stolen from the hostess's bedroom. She's just drunk, he said. Hopefully she won't remember in the morning. She'll send flowers if she does. Francis took up the photograph, a recent studio portrait of the hostess. Her head was tilted back, her mouth ajar, a frantic happiness in her eyes. Francis ran her finger along the edge of the ornate frame. Is this jade? I think it is, said Malcolm. It's very beautiful, she said, and handed it back to Malcolm. He opened the frame and removed the photo, folding it in crisp quarters and dropping it into a trash can beside their bench. He returned the frame to his coat pocket and resumed his study of the party, pointing out a late middle-aged man with a cummerbund encasing a markedly round stomach. That man's some type of ambassador. Yes, said Francis, and if those epaulets could talk. Did you speak to his wife? Francis nodded. Men's teeth in a child's mouth. I had to look away. She flicked her cigarette into the street. Now what, Malcolm said. A vagrant approached and stood before them. His eyes were bright with alcohol, and he asked in a chirpy voice, Got anything to spare tonight, folks? Malcolm was leaning in to shoo the man when Francis caught his arm. It's possible that we do, she said, but may we ask what you need the money for? Oh, you know, the man raised and dropped his arms, just getting by. Could you please be more specific? I guess I'd like a little wine if you really want to know. He swayed in place and Francis asked him in a confiding voice, Is it possible you've already had something to drink tonight? I got my edges smoothed, the man admitted. And what does that mean? Means I had a drink before, but now I'm thinking about another. Francis appreciated the answer. What's your name? Dan. May I call you Daniel? If that's what you want to do. What's your preferred brand of wine, Daniel? I'll drink anything wet, ma'am, but I do like that three roses. And how much for a bottle of three roses? A bottle's five bucks, a gallon's eight. He shrugged as if to say that the gallon was the shrewd consumer's choice. And what would you buy if I gave you twenty dollars? Twenty dollars, said Dan, and he whistled a puff of dry air. For twenty dollars I could get two gallons of three roses and a weenie. He patted the pocket of his army coat. I already got my cigarettes. The twenty would set you up nicely, then. Oh, quite nicely. And where would you bring it all? Back to your room? Dan squinted. He was realizing the scenario in his mind. The weenie I'd eat on the spot. The wine and the cigarettes, I'd take those into the park with me. That's where I sleep most nights, in the park. Where in the park? Under a bush? A particular bush? A bush is a bush in my experience. 
Frances smiled sweetly at Dan. All right, she said. So you'd lie under a bush in the park and you'd smoke your cigarettes and drink your red wine. Yeah. You'd look up at the stars. Why not? Frances said, would you really drink both gallons in a night? Yeah, yes, I surely would. Wouldn't you feel awful in the morning? That's what mornings are for, ma'am. He'd spoken without comedic intent, and Frances thought that Dan's mornings were probably wretched beyond her comprehension. Sufficiently touched, she opened her clutch and fished out twenty dollars. Dan received the bill, shuddered from skull to toe, then walked off at an apparently painfully brisk pace. It's a brilliant opening set piece, and I think gives a great sense of what the book is like and the sort of overall tone of the book, mm-hmm. um, which... I think you could call a comedy of manners. Or in the American edition, don't they bill it as a tragedy of manners? Was that your... My stab at PR. <laughs> it was, actually. I, I set out um, with the idea that it would just sort of adhere to all the rules of the traditional British comedy of manners. And as the story evolved and things take a sort of darker turn towards the end, it seemed that that designation wasn't accurate, um, or as accurate as I'd wanted it to be. So we began calling it a tragedy of manners, but... That in itself, I think, is a comedic turn of phrase. So it's a comedy of manners, basically, yes. And can you talk a bit about the comedy of manners? What are the traditions of the form and why were you so interested in this form? Um, You've sort of tackled a lot of other genres in in your previous novels, from westerns to medieval romances. Yeah. Well, it's just very dialogue heavy. And um, the story is typically told through what people say and then also what they don't say, the way they behave in social situations. And um, plot exists in my work, but it's not sort of the, the centerpiece. I, I don't think it's much more about the individuals making up the universe of, of the book. And how do we get to know each other? We get to know each other by talking. So dialogue is what's come, what comes easiest to me, and it's sort of my favorite aspect of writing fiction. So A Comedy of Manners is a very chatty landscape, so I was you know, keen to, to jump into it. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> it's quite an unusual one to find someone approaching in a contemporary way as well. Mm. And I, I love the way that actually there's something very timeless about this narrative, and then there are moments of contemporary culture kind of invading yeah. the landscape. Um, and I wanted to ask you if, if you think that there's, I don't know, for me it felt like there's something about a particular kind of very luxury lifestyle that is very timeless because it's the same spaces, it's the same brands, luxury hotels, Chanel dresses, you know, Paris, New York, whatever, that feels like it's quite unchanged over the last 100 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that was something that you had in mind when you were writing or whether it was something that kind of just evolved out of spending time with these people in this world that they're, that they're living in. Well, I'm, I'm coming at this world very much from the point of view of the outsider. And I think that that is um, similar to the Western or to the, you know, the medieval um, or you know, fable-based story. I'm on the outside looking in. It's not something that I've studied particularly or in the case of um, you know, the, the, the wealthy. Um, this is not the world that I grew up in. There's something very freeing about jumping into uh, a subject matter or a landscape, and yet, um, you know, the ignorance, my ignorance uh, as to what these these scenarios are actually like is sort of freeing in a way. You get to fill it up with all sorts of personal information. Um, in terms of the setting being contemporary and, and then sort of straying from the contemporary, I had it in my mind. Um, I sat down to write a, a different type of book. Um, about an explorer, and this was going to be sort of the third historical novel 
in an imagined trilogy. So Sisters Brothers under Major Domo Minor and then this third novel. And I had up to this point enjoyed very much writing in this sort of antique language. Um, it's very just decorative and floral and really fun and you can get away with all sorts of poetic turns of phrase. And yet sitting down to do it for the third time in a row, I it, it, was, it had become less appealing all of a sudden and I had the sense that I wanted to write in a contemporary vernacular. So that was what uh, led me to write French Exit. But I found that I just don't have very much to say about... You know, it is a contemporary novel, but it's not particularly up to the minute, and it's not um, making any sort of commentary about what's going on in our world. I think that the themes are more timeless. It also does have um, a certain sort of... Um, it seems somewhat antique to me in terms of, you know, they take a luxury liner to, to Paris, and who does that nowadays? Nobody. And um, neither of them has a cell phone, and there's no reference to the internet, I don't think, anywhere in the book. And... I wanted it to be germane and relevant to to our lives now, and yet I, 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 I did come to see that I just don't have that much to say about uh, the way we live at this particular moment in time. So it's somewhat contemporary and then somewhat not, I think. And it's funny, too. Um, it's, I, I mean, I, I think because of what's happening in the present moment, we tend to connect our experience to the books we're reading perhaps more than a time when history doesn't feel so present in our lives. And for me, to, reading this book felt not that it was an escape, but mm -hmm. it was it was fun. Yeah. I laughed a lot. Um, yeah. it, it was satirical. And I, I wonder if you see that just as a mode that you enjoy writing in, you feel you're good at, or it's something that you specifically wanted to capture here. Right. I think with all my books, humor is sort of at the forefront. And starting out when I was younger, I... I I had it in my mind that maybe humorous writing or, or, or um, you know, a comical point of view was sort of secondary or lesser than a dramatic point of view or a, a melancholic point of view. And so I sort of struggled against it, really. And it wasn't until The Sisters Brothers, which isn't to say Ablutions doesn't have humor, but it does, but it's quite bleak. And I just had this sort of preconceived idea that that, that an author should be serious and stern and, and, and address painful things. And this is owing to the books that I was reading and... and um, it seems to be something of a popular opinion, I, I suppose, just that humor is secondary. But it it is the place I go to naturally. I think no matter what book I write, I think that there will be a good amount of um, humor and silliness and, and uh, ridiculousness and strangeness. And, and, and these are the places that I, I, I arrive at, uh, whether or not I, I want to. I, I think that I could sort of intentionally turn that part of myself off, but that doesn't feel natural or good and... and um, yeah, in terms of uh, the idea of it being an escapist work of fiction, I think that I'm I'm pleased to hear that. It's taken me some time to recognize it, but that I, I am an escapist, and I don't want to necessarily... You know, you study what's happening in, 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 in the world right now, and at the end of the day, I don't want to write about it because I've had enough of it already, and it's so grim, and it's so ugly, and it's so devoid of joy and humor. So I'm, I'm, I'm counterbalancing that with my own small uh, contribution. And if people look to my work as a way to forget about what's happening in the world, then that's all right with me. Yeah, it was. It honestly felt like a gift <laughs> to to go into that space. And I just I want to ask you about Frances because I really love her, <laughs> which is quite maybe a perverse thing to say about a character that wreaks so much havoc as well. Yeah. But she's um, 
I mean, she, she reminds me of some women that I've come across in my life mm-hmm. um, who are, yeah, complicated yeah. and violent, but violent in this incredibly refined, controlled way. And I love the way that you deploy swearing from the mouth of Francis because it comes very rarely. And when yeah. it comes, it is, you know, absolutely, yeah, kind of electrifying. But I wonder if you could just just dis- discuss the character and how she came to you and how you feel about her. Yeah. Yeah, it's my first uh my 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 previous three books are, are very male centric, you know. I, and I've known this I recognized this uh, as it was happening and wondering why, you know, why do I not have uh, why are fe- fe- females not more well represented in my work and I think part of it was owing to the idea that maybe I was fearful of of keep botching it somehow or screwing it up and I remember having lunch with a um an author, a woman who I'm a big fan of named Lynn Tillman in the US. And I brought this up at the end of a very chatty lunch that we'd had in, in, in Oregon. And she said I was, that was a silly thing to be fearful of. And, and then she made me sort of hearken back to the conversation we'd had. And she pointed out that she was not speaking on behalf of women and that I was not speaking on behalf of men. And actually our, um, what I'd said she could have said and what she said I could have said. And it, you know what I'm saying? Like our conversation wasn't gendered in any particular way. And um, this was really freeing in a way and, and, and very obvious and I felt sort of silly even bringing it up. But I needed to hear this um, from someone. And so I, I felt freer just to give it a whirl. And Francis is a character who I've had in my mind for a long time. And I have sort of a list of people that I'm hoping to get to at some point. And it's usually quite vague. And Francis was certainly very vague. But she was a wealthy woman who whose wit was weaponized often and, and who could be very caustic and, and, and biting, but also was, um, could be very shrewd and loving at the same time. And, and, uh, you know, a complicated and nuanced character. I had it in my mind that perhaps she'd be sort of, um, part of a, a set piece, somebody who would sort of stroll into the scene and, and, um, deploy a, a, a caustic word or two and then, and then depart. But what happens sometimes is you sit down with these characters or you give them a sort of an audition and, and they perform uh, beyond your expectations. And that's certainly what happened with Frances to the point that I almost wanted to give her uh, the first-person point of view in the book. It seemed that third, ultimately, third person was, was, was the better way to go. But, um, yeah, she just showed up with lots to say. And then uh, the relationship between her and her son, Malcolm, was, was uh, sort of just a really rich one from the start as well and something that I wanted to explore and... and um, Anyway, these two characters, and, and primarily Francis, showed up um, with so much to say that the book sort of uh, grew around their their personalities. I feel strange asking this question because I don't usually ask it, but it seems somehow important in this instance, which is, do you like these characters? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, because yeah. I really liked them, yeah, but I felt course. quite conflicted about that. Yeah, I understand. I mean, they're not what you'd say. Um, they're not necessarily good people. Um they're highly selfish and, and, and um, they don't uh, have a lot of empathy and they don't suffer fools and, and uh, they're difficult to be around. Uh, in real life, I don't know that I'd necessarily want to spend that much time with them. But um, I can't spend as much time as you spend with these people. I don't know that I would write a book about somebody that I didn't care for or love or respect in some way because it would just be really debilitating, I think, to spend so many days or months or years um, studying and sort of prodding people that you didn't have an affection for. So 
I think most of my books feature people that are not purely good or purely bad. It's much more um, painting in gray tones. I think that's how real life is, and, and I hope that that's reflected in my work. But of course, yeah, I, I, I have a real affection for uh, the Price family and Mal uh, Francis, excuse me, in particular. So that by the end of the book, it's almost really a sort of a sorrowful thing when the book ends and you have to move on. Um, I still think about her quite a lot. Do you think about what she might say in particular situations? Of course. And, and again, it's very much like real life when you meet somebody who's made a big impression on you and you're um, a, apart from them later on down the road. Something occurs and you wonder what he or she would say. That's how it is with Francis for me. Somebody will say something foolish and I sort of wonder how how would Francis dispatch this person, you know? Yeah, it makes me think that you are probably quite, there's something inside of you that's quite good at dispatching people. So and I don't know if I could even have written Francis in that oh, way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sure, I mean, there, the, the, some of my friends have sort of pointed out that they believe that there is an, uh, an unkind old woman <laughs> in me and has been wanting to get out clearly for, for a while now. And so I got to unleash her in, in this book. I'm very glad that you did. <laughs> I think I think we should all cultivate the unkind on woman within us. Yeah. You know, she can be a very powerful force for uh, maybe not good, but definitely advancement of one yeah. form or yeah, another. Yeah, yeah. Or just entertainment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, well, as you said, you know, the relationship between Frances and her adult son, Malcolm, is, is kind of one of the things that drives the narrative. Um, and I was sort of... <laughs> left thinking a lot about Malcolm as well, because he's in so many ways such a passive character. Mm -hmm. um, and I was thinking about how he's quite infantilized. Yeah. And that that seems to come about from almost as a result of their excessive wealth, right? And I wondered if, if that was something that you'd thought of as well, that, you know, denying someone the opportunity to work yeah. almost denies them the chance for some kind of emancipation. Um, I think it does. And I, I have a son and, and he's getting to the age where he'll probably have a part time job soon enough. And it's not that he necessarily needs it. Um, do you know what I mean? In terms of, I mean, he doesn't have to have a job if he doesn't want to have a job. But I'm keen for him to have one because he learned so much from working. And um, I had any number of jobs that were they were highly instructive, but oftentimes they were they were demeaning or or um, just simplistic or or or, or just um, dull. But it's an important thing I think for everyone to go through, and it, you learn so much about humanity, and and um, it brings your empathy into focus, I think. And to skip out on that equation entirely, I I think is probably hugely detrimental to the evolution of a, of an individual, and I think that we see evidence of that with Malcolm, sir. Yeah, well, there's, there's, he ends up so separate, doesn't he, from society in a way that obviously Francis does as well, but it seems very different for a woman of her stature than it does for this kind of man baby. Yeah, <laughs> and Francis has already lived a very full life by the time she's sort of taken up with her son, who she'd ignored for the first 12 years of his life. Um, and so she's sort of retired, and he's never really entered into the field in the first place, so that's the difference between them. So the theme of our show today is high society, um, okay. as, as inspired by your book. So, so we're thinking more generally about the rich in fiction mm -hmm. and how they've been written, why they've been written. And I just wanted to put the question to you, you know, do you think it's worth, I mean, obviously you think it's worth writing about the rich, but why do you think we're so fascinated by rich people? And, and did it ever give you pause sort of 
adding another portrait of the 1% to the mix. Yeah. Well, I remember I submitted the book and to my U.S. editor, I said, this is probably the worst time in the history of mankind for me to have painted a somewhat sympathetic portrait of, of the wealthy. Um, is this a story that the world needs right now? I don't know. But I don't have that much control over what I write about. You know, it comes down to the characters, as I said before. And if somebody shows up ready to, to do the work, uh, who am I to turn my back on them? So is it a necessary book right now? I, c I can't really say um, it was necessary for me to write it. I hope that it, that it, it finds a place in the world and that people can relate to it in some way beyond just the, 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 the character's economic status. Um, I think that we're fascinated by the wealthy for tabloid reasons. You know, what is it like to not have to work? What is it like to not have to worry about where the money's coming from? It's not so much that I don't necessarily crave that situation, and I don't know that anybody necessarily does. I'm sure some do, but that's not the function of this book. You know, it's not really about that. It's more complicated, and their and their lives are quite ugly in so many ways. I don't really envy the the Price family. Um, in some ways, money has been their downfall. Um, they they are just so terribly isolated, and this is stemming from their fact of their not having to be. Um, engaged with uh, with humanity in, in, in any meaningful way. We had Otessa Moshfeg on the show last month. Oh, great. And she was talking about writing about rich people. Mm -hmm. And she said for her, the attraction was partially that it took away so many worries that the characters had. So they could make choices and decisions Yeah. Um, and have thoughts that are just simply inaccessible to other people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And because uh, th this story couldn't, the Price family, um, the story that occurs in French exit couldn't have occurred if these people didn't have access to great wealth. And, I mean, the story really is about what happens when these people who have been relying on wealth all their lives suddenly don't have that wealth, don't have access to that money anymore, and they don't really know what to do, and their lives devolve without it. They're like flightless birds in some way, you know. They, they, they don't know how to take care of themselves. So it's quite pathetic, I think, ultimately. Um, and there's some very dark topics I think that are tackled in, in this book um, but yeah as a narrative sort of trick or as a shortcut um, if these people were working class the story wouldn't function in the way that it functions it wouldn't make sense so it's, it was a needed thing for me well, there's also such a strong element of the absurd that runs through it, which is partly facilitated by the absurdity of that kind of wealth, right? Like, yeah. like you say, getting a, a liner to Paris from New York. But also, we have to, you know, have a moment with Franklin Price, who's a man trapped inside a cat's body. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that kind of, for me, having this um, element of the supernatural and the absurd alongside this high society kind of structure it makes perfect sense and mm -hmm. it made me think of Blythe Spirit and like oh, you yeah. know well, yeah and the, yeah. the green Elvira appearing which yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. seems to have bled in slightly to your creative landscape there but yeah. um, it, it seems to fit that because there's so much absurd about their lives which is very real and very immediate for mm -hmm. the super rich and then the sort of fable element of the story um, it seems to facilitate that kind of traveling between different modes of expression really, really well um, as well. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I wonder if you could talk about your decision to include this kind of supernatural strand and yeah. how that came to you. Yeah, my relationship to the supernatural, it seems that it comes up in each book 
to the point that I've sort of made a note to myself that with the next book I, I have to stop <laughs> or I have to <laughs> investigate it more fully, like have the whole book be about it as opposed to it just sort of ex existing in some small format in each of the books. I don't know why I keep doing it or I do know why I keep doing it, but it's not a particularly interesting reason. I have a fascination with um, ideas of the afterlife and, and, and things along that line and it's something that I have I think a genuine fear of and and and, and uh, a wariness, and it just sort of makes me uneasy, and and I wind up uh, addressing it because of this unease. Um, it also makes for I think, or it can make for a good story. So, you know, something about getting to know a sort of a I mean, Franklin Price, the character who lives inside the cat, is is had once been a very powerful and dangerous individual. And he's been reduced to the life of a domesticated North American house cat lost in Paris. And that's just as a setup to me. It's pleasing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to me as well. <laughs> but also just what you're saying about the supernatural, the way that you spoke about Francis kind of appearing to you was almost like a seance. And like, you know, these characters are, are emerging fully formed out of the kind of ether. Yeah, yeah. It's really fascinating to me how it goes, because typically uh, I'll have a character in mind and it's very rare for the ones that I want to deliver to deliver. Um, it's not It's not that it never happens, it's just that there's no science to it and I, and I never really know what's coming next. And um, it's very common for a, a, a smaller character to, you know, perform uh, more impressively than the, than the uh, proposed major character and then you have to sort of shift the story around to accommodate for that. And it's the not knowing um, that makes part of the job so fascinating. You know, every day is a bit of a shock or surprise. And there's great disappointments, but there's also these lovely surprises along the way. And so it keeps it all interesting for me. Love the idea that writing is a surprise even to the writer. Yeah. That's wonderful. Sure. Um, and I wanted to ask you about Paris, which we haven't touched on place, but it's quite a significant part of this novel. Um, yeah. Uh, Francis and Malcolm move from New York to Paris um, when Francis basically burns through all of their savings and they have nothing to do but to have to live in her friend's apartment in Paris. Um, and of course, the American in Paris is 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 a trope um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and a, and a sort of joke. So mm -hmm. I wonder what interested you about an American in Paris and and sort of how did you want to put your own spin on it? Yeah, I came to Paris in my life maybe nine years ago or something like that, and I didn't want to even really go um, because I had the sense that it was just... Uh, you always hear or you often hear that Paris is, is ruined or it's not the way it used to be and, and there's no point in necessarily going now. It's too touristy and all that stuff. But I went and I had this really strange emotional reaction to the place. I just felt completely calm, um, which is not the norm for me. And... I just enjoyed it immensely. And then I came to know and love my translators there, and our relationship became very deep very quickly as a married couple um, who I still spend a lot of time with and I'm in touch with. And I just was charmed by the place and to the point that I wanted and still want to live there and, and um, just an ongoing fascination. So um, I wanted to write about it, and I tried to write about it in an earlier book that, that didn't uh, I, I couldn't finish the book the book fell apart and um, years later I picked up the notes that I'd taken and, and, and sort of crammed them into this book. I, I, 
I feel that I approach cliche and things that are overwritten in, in most of my works, and, and this is just what happens when you work within the confines of genre. I think that I obviously have a, a, a sense of, I like approaching uh, cliche and then sort of, um, not necessarily turning it on its head, but making it my own in some way. Um, usually um, through my humor or, or just filling it with some sort of um, personal information. So a familiar starting point becoming ever less familiar as the pages turn. It's just um, one of the things that I seem to like to do. So well, it's, it's funny that you pull out the idea of cliche because it's, it's actually one of the quotes that I wrote down was uh, comes from Frances where she says, she describes a cliche as a story so fine and thrilling that it's grown old in its hopeful retelling, yeah. which I thought was <laughs> kind of an amazing way of thinking of it because yeah. it's something that, you know, when you're taught about literature at school, you know, it's avoid a cliche. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. It, it's like this terrible ghost of kind of bad writing and that's nonsense actually. There is so much to be explored in those kind of... Yeah, well, I think I think that that, that cliche is... is uh, it's a cliche for a reason and typically it's because it's something that's deeply relatable or deeply satisfying. So for me, I'm not one of these writers who wants to do something completely new, like cut from its own cloth or, or, or however you put it. Um, I'm much more interested in the idea of approaching an existing landscape and demanding, or I'm interested in approaching this, um, familiar landscape and, and making it my own in some way. So Francis was really speaking on, on behalf of, of my work, I think, in, in, in that, in that, with that sentence, with that, with that quip of hers, she's talking about her own life, but, but it's a, it's a line that I relate to deeply, I think. Patrick DeWitt, it's been such a pleasure to have you on Literary Friction. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you guys. This is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is high society in literature. It's very a fun, fun, jaunty theme, isn't it? <laughs> Perhaps yeah. not appropriate for our moment, but we'll talk about that. Yeah, we will. Um, but anyway, it's inspired by Patrick DeWitt's novel, French Exit, a biting look at the American upper classes. So let's start by saying uh, it was pretty obvious that it would be easy to do a show about high society because there are just so many freaking novels about rich people and not only freaking novels but you know classic novels i'm being really loopy today i think it's the theme i'm just gonna go with it um so the great gatsby picture of dorian gray the line of beauty age of innocence remains of the day love in a cold climate i could go on you could yes so why do we keep writing about rich people octavia what's going on what is going on i think because they are such a small proportion of society and yet, you know, like you say, they take up an enormous amount of cultural space. And it's because it's fascinating. It's fascinating that we have created a society 
in which so many people suffer. <laughs> and yet there is this tiny proportion that's able to live in this way that's completely fantastical. It's it's out, outrageous. Um, and we remain romantically attached to it. And it remains this idea of escapism because it would be pure escapism. It is pure escapism from reality. I, I think the wild thing about high society as well, in particular, is that, you know, you can't divorce the notion of high society from like a notion of high birth and aristocracy or this kind of old money, new money thing, which is an interesting tension that comes out between like British writing and American writing, which we'll go on to talk about a bit. Um, but there's that idea as well that, you know, everyone is very aware and at these times more than ever that all human beings are not born equal and that even though, you know, I mean, obviously in this country, we're not yet a republic yet, yet. Um, but the, this, this, the, the, the baseline fact that some people are born into legacies of great wealth and all that that facilitates and then the majority of people are born with nothing it, relatively um, remains interesting. Yes, I totally agree. And like Patrick DeWitt said, um, it, there's sort of a tabloidy element. It's it's how the other half lives. It's almost aspirational. Um, I also think on a on a much less political level, perhaps um, the social codes of the wealthy just lend themselves well to plot because you can't have a comedy of manners if there aren't a lot of manners established. Yeah, um, that's true. And so many of the classics of rich literature, but also specifically, I think, comedy of manners and thinking about, you know, Oscar Wilde or Ian Forrester, those kinds of writers, even F. Scott Fitzgerald, they rely upon sort of slight misunderstandings or um, a falling down of when somebody doesn't accord with the codes. Let's yeah, yeah. Uphold the, the, uphold. the codes. That's the word. And Jane Austen as well, you know, mm. like, I mean, less le in a less extreme way. But again, those like very... It, you know, for for Jane Austen's novels, that they're, they're facilitated by these tight knit communities and the tensions between you know things that happen in one drawing room, <laughs> in one homogenous social group. Mm. Um, it's wild. It's wild also that those manners and those expectations are still as as explored in Patrick's book. They still those codes are still in operation in those portions of society, which is nuts, but it's yeah. kind of true. Yeah, and I. On that note, I don't think we can talk about novels about high society without talking about satire. Thank God. Because I think, <laughs> I think a satirical element comes into almost every single one of the books that I just mentioned. Um, and, and it certainly comes into Patrick's book as well. Um, and I think, you know, the rich are skewered often in fiction. And just by pointing to these absurd codes and ways of living, you're almost just setting up satire just by depicting well, the realism of, of this lifestyle. I wanted to say, like, would is it possible to write about the, the super rich without it being on some level satirical, even unintentionally, unintentionally, because their, li the, their lifestyle is so absurd? I mean, and I, I can't help but think about reality television and, and you know, um, the kind of all the Real Housewives programs and things like that, which... I don't watch, but I know a bit about um, because I exist in the world. And, you know, it's a similar thing where a lens is, is turned on a community like that. Is the lens merely documentary or is it a satirical lens? Can it be, can it avoid being that? Because what it's showing you is so completely fucking absurd. And I find that with Jane Austen's novels. I find Jane Austen's novels completely fucking absurd. I find, um, you know, Oscar Wilde's 
novels obviously much more intentionally satirical. I mean, Austen is is writing with a caustic eye, but I don't think she's as extreme, as overtly satirical as somebody like Oscar Wilde. But then there's also the question of are are those books still reinforcing the romanticism mm. of those worlds? And what do we do about that? And and where do our ethics sit in relation to that? Um, I didn't find reading Patrick's book ethically complicated because it was so funny and such a brilliantly written book that I, I loved reading it and I devoured it and felt richer for it. But I think that there is a question of ethics in this topic in general in literature and looking at what that means and you know, why we, especially in this country, are still so goddamn attached to these stories. And I, I kind of can't believe how much space they're given, the old ones, you know, and like the endless television remakes of novels from, you know, the 20th century about rich families and, you know, Evelyn War and all of that. I just, I find it troubling. Yeah, um, I think that is right. Although where I always end up coming down on this is it's worth problematizing um, our fascination that's always coupled even with the most satirical of these novels um, without banning people from writing about rich people. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, uh, that, which is not what you're suggesting, but I always end up in the same place when I ask these questions about what it's right to write about. I, what I found really interesting when I was doing research for the show is I kept coming across articles about by people talking about how there wasn't enough literature that humanized the rich, oh which I thought God. was so interesting. Um, and, uh, and and maybe it's because of exactly what you're talking about, but there was a um, an article in The New Yorker from 2015 called The Rich in Fiction. It was sort of a book review um, by someone named Daphne Merkin. But she, she says, ever since the birth of the novel, which took its impetus from the radical transformation of class structure in the 18th century, the rich have got the short end of the stick often caricatured when they're not overtly demonized, which I thought was so interesting. And I and and I thought was an interesting view of the purpose of the novel and how very wealthy people end up coming out in the novel. Um, and then, you know, later on, there was something in The Independent about, um, about how we need... Oh, no, sorry, it was in The Guardian by somebody called Tanya Kindersley, who again said, we need more humanized rich people in fiction because they're always satirized. And I just wanted to end... Um, with Hemingway famously, although perhaps apocryphally, um, he made this up. But anyway, told Fitzgerald when the latter insisted that the very rich are different from you and me, Hemingway said, yes, they have more money, <laughs> which I which I like. And, and I think gets to the heart of a lot of the discussions we're having right now, which is, is are these people different people or is it just a different world that they're inhabiting? And what what does fiction need to do to convey these worlds, not not just accurately, but ethically. Yeah, fairly. I mean, the thing is, money does change people, how can it not? Because we are a, a, a character, our characters develop in relation to our external experiences. You you know, you, I don't believe that you have an essence of who you are that is um, completely impervious to your surroundings. Yeah. So, you know. Lionel Trilling agrees with you. Right. Good good on Lionel Trilling. <laughs> um, should we talk about our No, I want to keep talking about the philosophy of soul and spirit, Carrie. <laughs> yes. What is your favorite book about high society? Well, this isn't actually my favorite book about high society, but it's just, it's one I wanted to talk about because precisely because it's it's written by someone very wealthy about a very wealthy environment. So, um it's called The Blessing by Nancy Mitford, who um 
yeah she was the daughter of a baron um and and was one of the bright young things on the kind of scene in london in the interwar years who evelyn war was writing about in vile bodies um which was you know this gang of bohemian aristocrats and socialites who partied hard and did what they wanted and you know led a very exciting life in many ways and there was a lot of nihilism around because it was between the, the war years when you know it must have been a very crazy time to be to be alive um this book is uh yeah it's i don't know i i also want to talk about it because it's a little bit less ubiquitous than vile bodies which has had a lot of airtime generally in the world and is a great book but um this is about a naive young english woman who goes to live in france with her french aristocratic husband and it was actually quite an, an autobiographical book it's very small it's a little novella um she finds herself overwhelmed completely by all the cultural differences the strange cuisine this weird social decadence of these europeans who like don't give a fuck and you know talk about comedy of manners coming from this very repressed English buttoned up high society into uh, a kind of like rabid, wild French, you know, which has its own rules and regulations. But within those rules and regulations, there's a lot more self-expression going on from the eyes of, of this of this main character. Um, anyway, it's too much for her, uh, mainly also because her French husband suddenly declares that, you know, he has French marital expectations, which means many, many mistresses and as many lovers as he wants and not for her. So she ends up going back to London with their child or their blessing, Sigismond, whose nickname is Siggy throughout the book. And basically, little Siggy is the character that provides the kind of almost outsider's perspective in that he realizes that if he manages to keep his parents separated, he will benefit greatly, <laughs> not just financially, but also in terms of the amount of love and attention he gets. And he wants to be a spoiled little Lord Fauntleroy. So he puts all of his childish wits into this task. And the book is, I mean, it's hilarious. And it's a very dark look at the way that children can interrupt the flow of adults' lives and the idea that, you know, adults, but maybe particularly these very rich people who are used to having kind of absolute control over their environments can be completely scuppered by the unknown quantity that is a child that's having a personality developing. But also Siggy's kind of greed and need for these things, it 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 really spoke to me in relation to this conversation because as we sort of talked about a bit with Patrick, the infantilizing elements of this of the kind of super wealthy lifestyle are distilled into this child who wants to remain a child in all of these ways that both of his parents kind of also remain children because their wealth means they don't have to interact with reality. And it's something I think about a lot. So, yeah, I, I mean, I haven't read it for many years, but it, it was a very powerful kind of visitation when we decided on the topic. Cool. I've never read anything by Nancy Mitford, although a number of people have recommended Love in a Cold Climate to me. Yeah, I found that book pretty boring. I mean, the Mitford sisters are a fucking weird proposition that, you know, could have a whole show dedicated to yeah. them and their bizarre aristocratic ways. But, you know, if you wanted to dip your toe into that world, this would be a good way to do it. A rousing recommendation from <laughs> Octavia Bright, people. Um, so my, rec well, favorite book recommended book about high society is not a revelation um it's also not an unknown book it's a very well-known book um and maybe the one that everyone would think of when they thought about this topic but it has to be the remains of the day um by ishiguro uh which i think is one of my favorite novels i really love it and um as many of our listeners will know it's a story narrated by stevens who for many years has worked as the head butler um, at Darlington Hall, which um, a period that in, sort of goes from the 30s up to the present day, including during the Second World War. Um, 
And Stevens in the story is is telling the story of his butlering, but also in the present day is taking his first holiday in many, many years to go see the woman who used to be the um, the housekeeper at Darlington Hall. Um, and Stevens is very, you know, he is a butler. That is his identity. And he's devoted to the values of English high society. Um, he values propriety. He values civility. He he values calm in times of chaos. He, he values not showing one's emotions. Um, and the sort of devastating thing about this novel, it's, it's not a send-up. It's not a satire. It's not a comedy of manners. It is a very, very, in the end, sad book about what happens when one subsumes oneself to the system and and cannot fully feel and does then not fully live a life um and it's beautiful and so sad and and he has this amazing way of you know by the time you sort of get to the scene when stevens has the realization maybe i'm just spoiling the novel oh whatever um spoiler alert (laughs) it's it's over already uh it's spoiled already um it's so subtle and yet so meaningful and um i just I think it's a wonderful psychological portrait and also one of the best dissections of British class that I've I've read. I've never read it. And you gave me goosebumps listening to you talk about it. I, it's definitely the kind of book that I would just assume that I wasn't interested yeah. in. Yeah, I mean, I it's definitely the kind of book I like and maybe that you wouldn't like. But I'd be interested to know what you think. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably not going to read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe one Good. Day. Okay, well, we'll be back in a minute with um, Patrick DeWitt to give our book recommendations. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright and also with our lovely author guest, Patrick DeWitt, to give our book recommendations. So, Octavia, do you want to start? With pleasure. Um, So my recommendation this month has come as a bit of a surprise to me. Um, I'm reading a biography of Nietzsche, which is not something I ever thought I'd do. (laughs) But it's really great. Uh, It's called I Am Dynamite, A Life of Friedrich Nietzsche, and it's by Sue Prideaux. And yeah, it's a really captivating read. And I'm not somebody who reads a huge amount of biography and I'm not somebody who wants to get up the inside of many male philosophers these days. But actually, um, this is really, yeah, it's changing my perspective on those things a bit. I mean, obviously Nietzsche is a big old monolith of a figure in Western thought and someone whose work I read when I was doing my doctorate and you know had lots of opinions about. Some of it I liked, some of it I didn't. Um, and he's someone whose thought has been co-opted by some of the darkest figures in, in recent history as well. So he's, you know, he's complex. And I, I approached this biography thinking, all right, what's the deal? Like, what what's compelled this person to write this book? Because biography is never without intent of some kind or another. And I was thrilled to find out that she, <laughs> she has a very good sense of humor about this guy and all of the dudes that he was um, heavily involved with. So Richard Wagner is a figure who comes out like a complete asshole in the most brilliant way. <laughs> he and his wife had love names for one another based on Schopenhauer's concepts. And they were like this kind of sickly, intellectual couple of I don't know anyway it's, it's very funny and you feel like Sue Prido's eyebrow is just firmly raised the whole way through but also she's very gently 
kind of showing us how disturbed Nietzsche was and what a complex person he was um, and how actually he was driven by a lot of the same petty worries that most of us are. Um, but yeah, she also, the thing, I think the thing I'm enjoying the most, I haven't finished it yet, the thing I'm enjoying the most is the way that she brings in a lot of the really complex philosophy that inspired him um, in a completely non-patronizing, very easy to understand way. And it just kind of helps uh, certain concepts fit together and, and gives a, a, a greater context for some of the more outrageous things that he said. So yeah, I'm into it. And I, and I would recommend it. And I would recommend it to people who don't normally read biography and who don't normally want to think about Nietzsche. Cool. Uh, that's a Felicity Bryan Associates book. Oh, is it? My Literary Agency Represents Sue Prito. Not me personally, but yes. Um, and I think when we've been talking about it in the agency, they, they said, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that because that's been the line that everyone's saying is it's it's not just a biography. It's a, it's a, a new look and a really exciting sort of light touch yeah even I'm, when it's serious well it kind of looks yeah. at Nietzsche as though he was uh Jesus <laughs> you know like he could be god what's that guy's name I've completely Kanye forgotten West. that's right <laughs> like he's Kanye West you know like he's this kind of big balls billy like egomaniac dickhead mm -hmm who happen to have some really fascinating things to say that are still really illuminating and important but also what a jerk Kind of. Yeah, cool. But she definitely does not use language of that register. Yeah. <laughs> She's not saying big balls, Billy. <laughs> no, or Jesus. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Patrick, could we have your uh, book recommendation, please? Sure, yeah. I just finished a book of short stories by an American writer named Amy Barrowdale, and it's called You Are Having a Good Time. And I don't read that many short story collections. It was a gift from my ex-girlfriend, actually. She thought that I would um, enjoy it, and I, I really did. And I burned through it uh, front to back without any jumping around. And I was really impressed with so many things in the book. Um, the stories are all really different, the settings, um, different parts of the world, different points of view, different um, registers that she's, that she's writing in. Um, it's quite dark and very strange, I found, and yet never sort of um, nihilistic. I got the sense that... Um, Amy Baradale, I got the sense that Amy Baradale um, obviously enjoys working with language very much, um, sort of in this infectious way that makes it so fun to read. The sentences are highly elegant and polished, but also the specifically with the endings of the stories, I never really knew where it was going, and every story was really surprising in its conclusion. There was um, by the end of each line of the, each story, it's, it's, it seemed perfect in that it had to end at this particular moment in this particular way, but I could never um, have known where it, was, where it was leading. So it was just very surprising and strange, as I say, and I recommend it very highly. Great, thanks. Right. I, maybe this is too personal a question, but I read in another interview that you don't like reading books that people give to you as a gift. It's true, I very what, rarely do it. Yeah. What made you... I read the first um, a couple sentences of the of the first story, and it was I just found it fascinating, and it just sort of drew me right in. So, but yeah, I don't I don't read very many gift books, and I don't read that much contemporary fiction. So so this book sort of defied both of those um, those rules for me. Extra worth it then. Yeah. I think so yeah. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much. Um, well, for my recommendation, I'm going to continue our Deborah Levy celebration on. 
literary friction. <laughs> um, you recommended Hot Milk last month. I've recommended her books before. Um, but anyway, I just I just read a short nonfiction book of hers called The Cost of Living. Um, and it is actually part of a trilogy, which she calls a living autobiography about women in art, um, which I actually didn't know when I read it and only realized afterwards. So you don't have to have read the first book in the trilogy, although now I really want to. Um, but... Deborah Levy, I mean, she she just, I am just here for whatever she has to say. And and this book is kind of just a very short collection of her thoughts about things. But I just, lo- I loved reading it. Um, it's, it follows a period in her life. Um, she gets divorced and she sort of moves out of her family home into this flat in London and rediscovers herself as an artist she gets a writing shed she buys an e-bike that she sort of fixates on and tears around London it's a bike that is electronic so you can like get up hills and you don't have to pedal as much and she falls in love with this e-bike and there are all these scenes of her sort of like (laughs) zipping around London with like freezing cold hands on her e-bike doing her shopping um and she just, I think it's a really compelling portrait of of women later in their lives and the sacrifices that come with having a family and a marriage and um, what she had given up and what she gains. Um, and just some really lovely portraits of her friends. And it's very short and it's very readable. And it made me think a lot about how you make art and how you decide to make art and the circumstances in which you make art. And, and she just, she's funny. She's thoughtful. Um, mm. Yeah, Deborah Levy, The Cost of Living. I maybe, would recommend it. Maybe we'll get her on the show one day. Yeah, maybe. Would you freak out? Um, no, I think I'd be okay. Yeah, you'd hold it together. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, a sophisticated... You're uh, a cool cucumber yeah, character. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. really are. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, I want to read it. Can I borrow it? Yes, thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Patrick DeWitt, Josh Farmer at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on ncs.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram, and you can also get in touch with us via email, litfriction at gmail.com. Please say hi. We love to hear from you. Yes, we do. We'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. Literary Friction.